0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to MitoAction's monthly expert series. My name is Stephanie Harry, and I'm one of the patient support coordinators here at MitoAction and will be your host for today. Today's presentation focuses on mitochondria and psychiatry and will be recorded and available on MitoAction's website in the coming days, as well as on our podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, please feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Everyone in the Mito community understands the importance of mitochondria and energy metabolism, but what implications can Mito have on the brain? This presentation will discuss mitochondria and psychiatry and cover the evidence that for a subset of people with bipolar disorder, mitochondria may be dysregulated in the brain. We are thrilled to welcome today's speaker who will break all of this down for us, Dr. Andrew Nuremberg. Dr. Andrew Nuremberg graduated from Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University, Bronx, New York, and after completing his residency in psychiatry at New York University Bellevue Hospital, he studied clinical epidemiology at Yale University as a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar. Dr. Nuremberg then joined the faculty at Harvard Medical School, first at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, and then at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also an honorary professor in the School of Medicine, faculty at Health at Deakin University, Geelong, Australia, and an honorary professor at the University in Denmark. Dr. Nuremberg has published over 570 papers and has been listed in the best doctors in America for the treatment of mood and anxiety disorder in every edition since 1994. In 2000, he was awarded the Gerald L. Young Investigator Award, and in 2014, also the Investigator Award by the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. In 2013, Dr. Nuremberg was awarded the prestigious Brain and Behavior Research Foundation Colvin Prize for Outstanding Achievement and New disorders Research. And in 2014, he was awarded the Mentorship Award for Exceptional Mentorship in the research arena at MGH. In 2014 through 2017, he was listed among the world's most influential scientific minds by Clarivate, in recognition of ranking among the top 1% of researchers for most cited papers in the psychiatry worldwide. And in 2020, Dr. Nuremberg was given the International Society of Bipolar Disorder Sku Research Award, the highest award given, and ISBD, and in 2021, he was elected as the Vice President for Research of the ISBD. Dr. Nurnberg's primary interests are improving the use of existing treatments and finding innovative treatments for bipolar disorder. He lectures extensively, both nationally and internationally, teaches, supervises, maintains an active clinical practice, consults with industry, conducts clinical trials funded by federal research foundation, industry, philanthropic sources, and he serves as a peer reviewer for over 35 psychiatric journals. He is also a member of the editorial boards for over 15 different journals, including the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, Journal of Clinical Psychopharmacology, Journal of Affective Disorders, Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry and Bipolar Disorders. Dr. Nureberg has, is a past deputy editor of Depression and Anxiety and editor of Psychiatric Annals. Dr. Nureberg, you're amazing. What else can we say? You, um, I, we just really appreciate you being here and your willingness to break all of this down. You obviously have an amazing, um, you've given so much to the community and we just truly, truly appreciate it. And we truly appreciate your time that you're taking to be with us and educate us today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you, Stephanie. It's really a pleasure to be here it, it, and it's my uh, uh, pleasure to be able to meet with the community and And I'm happy to also um, have this as interactive as possible uh, and, and uh, happy to share with what, what little I, I know about this. Uh, so i'm gonna actually uh share my slides and i'm gonna ask the audience to do something a little different so when I share the slides uh which should be here um, when you, when when you're seeing this are you seeing me in a little box on the left and then a big slide on uh, uh on the right and a little slide a big slide on the left if if people can find the 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 barrier between the two and move it over so they're about equal size um, because usually the default is not great. And and it's like, it's not just the slides. I'm also going to try to be able to connect with you. And I think that's the way to do it. So if you can do that, do it. If you don't want to do it, that's also fine. Uh, what I'm happy to share with you is is in a sense, it's almost become a hobby for me to try to understand this relationship uh, between mitochondria and psychiatry. Uh, and, and look, I'm a, I'm a clinician. Um, I do clinical trials, um, very pragmatic sort of things, things that might actually help people. And, and in the past, oh, I guess almost 10, 15 years or so, I've been trying to the best I can to understand your world and the world of mitochondria. And it's really like going down a black hole. It, it's so complicated and so elegant um, that I think I've barely scratched the surface in really understanding this, but I keep trying. Um, let's see, let's go to the next one. Um, in in talks, I'm usually required to show disclosures. I work with a lot of companies. Um, in order to try to get new treatments to people. And I see it very much as a collaboration. All right. So this is, this is what I'd like to really talk about. I'm going to share my wonder and amazement about the relationship between mitochondria and the brain. Try to share what little I know about it and mostly what I don't know about it. Um, but at least I'll try to share with you as best as possible. Uh, Then we'll try to go over the psychiatric symptoms and the diagnoses that come along with mitochondrial diseases, really as a result of the relationship between mitochondria and the brain. And then the area that I know at least something about is the dysregulation in mitochondria in psychiatric disorders in general and for bipolar disorder uh, specifically. So let's see if we can go through this. You all know this in a sense. And and it's really awesome that we are made up uh, literally of the stuff of stars and that without being able to harness the energy that we produce from eating and from breathing—we couldn't do anything. Now, again, I, I know you know know this in in the mito action community. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm, I'm more sharing my awe about this, and and that. Um, I just think it's amazing that we exist at all. I think it's even more amazing that. I get to wake up every day. It's remarkable. And, and that during the day, trillions of times a day, my mitochondria doing what they need to do to keep me alive and functioning. And right now in all of us, it's allowing me to make sounds. Um, going across the internet, going into your ears and you make sense of that so it's uh, I, I just want to acknowledge how how stunning that is it's it's just uh, you know ordinary is pretty pretty amazing and this is the one of mo- the most influential books that I've read in the past ten years now Nick Lane is a uh, fundamental biologist but he's an evolutionary biologist um and and in his book he makes a really powerful case for how how did everything come to be how is it that we're at this particular stage of of evolution and where did the mitochondria come from um he talks about where in the evolution, the evolutionary uh, record, where is it consistent with his hypotheses? Where are the holes? What is that we know? And what is it that we don't know? And and so if you have any interest in in how mitochondria have evolved and and how, you know, they sort of crept into these other cells from elsewhere and then became integral to everything we do and helped us become who we, we've become, um, I, I urge you to read the book. It's, it's just, it's mind-boggling, um, really amazing. And, and that, that this three-pound organ in our brain, for it to take 20 to 25% of our calories is also stunning to me. Uh, it it is it is very expensive in terms of energy to have a brain um, our brains are on all the time and our brains are changing all the time uh, what it takes to make a brain work is is also nothing short of stunning because what our brains are doing right. It's not, you know, the metaphor that it's like a computer that's wired is completely wrong. Our brains are made of constantly changing cells that are not only making and breaking connections constantly. As I speak, you're making and breaking connections. Uh, but also there are these other cells that are within our brain called microglia. And through the work of Beth Stevens at Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, the Broad Institute, she found that these cells wander around our brain and they actually Eat synapses that aren't being used. Uh, you heard me right. They crawl around in your brain and they actually test if a synapse should be eaten or not. There's a very elegant signaling system for that. And if the signal says, eat me, they will eat the synapses, the connections between the neurons. So there's pruning. Like you prune a tree and it's going on all the time. And if that's dysregulated, you got a problem. It turns out that's one of the things that happens in schizophrenia. Um, there's, there's dysregulated pruning. Why am I telling you all this? Because it takes energy. It takes energy for those microglia to move around. They move around like amoeba. Um, it takes energy to make and break the connections between neurons. Um, It takes energy to release neurotransmitters. It takes energy, and this is really where it freaked me out when I learned this, that the mitochondria in our neurons don't just sit there, they have a uh, train system and they migrate on the train. They go from where they're, they're made and they go to where they're needed. And I'll tell you later that one of the things that looks like may be dysregulated in bipolar disorder is the train. The, the, the train is broken and the mitochondria can't get to exactly where they need to get to. So you've got this unbelievable process where you have to make the mitochondria in the brain because they don't come from anywhere else. Uh, you have to make them, you have to make them go where they need to go, uh, costs a lot of energy to maintain a brain, and a lot can go wrong with it. And also, as you may know from action, you also have to break down the mitochondria that need to be broken down, mitophagy, it's called, All right? So, so here you have this very dynamic process in this very mysterious three-pound process organ in our brain. And uh, there is a neuroscientist researcher at Northwestern and at Harvard, Lisa Barrett Feldman. And Lisa Barrett Feldman has a hypothesis that the single purpose of, of our brain is to regulate our energy, to direct us what to go towards, and to direct us what to go away from, and everything else is secondary, right? Which is really, I, I think, just a great theory. So, so I just wanted to set the picture for like, wow, this is, there's a big thing with mitochondria in the brain because it costs so much energy. This is just from February, uh, from Science Advances, of trying to understand the relationship between the genetic structure uh, all of our genes that that we're all that's the map for all of us and how that relates to the brain and what's going on and and I'll show you a very complicated picture in a moment don't worry about its complication I'll, I'll explain it sort of in general this is what's in that that article by Shaw that, that I just showed you the cover of for this and it shows how um Uh, The sort of genetic architecture is related to the way the brain is connected and how those connections are then related to functioning across multiple disorders, uh, which is really amazing. And it starts to explain the differences and the broad spectrum of... Why, why the different sort of disorders, what's going on in the brain? And it talks about epilepsy and Alzheimer's. It talks about ADHD, talks about bipolar disorder, autism. And there's a thing called a polygenic risk score. And a polygenic risk score is the relationship between multiple genes – and a categorical disorder like Alzheimer's, right? You have Alzheimer's disease or you don't. And and the way the field is working is looking at very complex, what's called genetic architecture and how these multiple genes that may put somebody at risk of having this uh, starts to explain a bit of, of why these things happen. And so this looks at the relationship between this complex polygenic risk score for a disorder and what people's brains look like. And again, it's just to show you this complexity and, 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 and the beauty with, with all of this. So our brains are dynamic. They're changing all the time. It costs energy to have it. And there are multiple ways that brains can be dysregulated. And sometimes that's related to mitochondrial dysfunction or function. So again I just want to get you to think a little bit about about how it's amazing we have a brain, it's amazing it works at all. It's not surprising that it can be dysregulated because it's so dynamic, it's changing all the time and it's so complicated. Let's go to act 2, right? The so so really the question then is in mitochondrial disorders, will we see symptoms that are psychiatric and will we actually see comorbid, co-occurring psychiatric diagnoses in mitochondrial disease? And so uh, I I tried to see if I can update this because all the way back from 2007 and, and 2010. And I looked in the literature and couldn't find anything else that was as good as this. So I think this... This uh, still stands the test of time. And, and that is for, for the kids who have mitochondrial disease, their onset of psychiatric di- disorders is, is 13 years before the mitochondrial disease diagnosis. So the first manifestation for many kids is psychiatric or behavioral, right? And As you might imagine, when they do have a psychiatric disorder, autism, ADHD, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, also tics and and things like that, they they just don't respond to the normal or or the, the expected medication that is indicated for these disorders. And the lifetime prevalence uh, of psychiatric disorders in mitral disease is either depression or psychiatric disorders, 50% of kids and, and for adults, you know, up to 70%. So start to go, well, why, why is that so? Why would this actually happen? And it goes back to what I was telling you before of, of our dynamic energy um, hungry Brains, Right. And all you got to do is dysregulate that and you'll get dysregulated brain function. And these are among the the psychiatric presentations with which many of of you who have family members with this uh, may be all too familiar with in terms of all the behavioral things that can happen in terms of the risks that can happen. And I think it's helpful to think about this as dysregulated mitochondrial function, dysregulated brains, dysregulated psychiatric symptoms, and dysregulated behavior. Then it starts to make at least a, a little bit of sense of what is going on. And the the range of treatments are treatments that, that I would imagine you're all too familiar with um, because this would overlap with the cocktails that, that you hope can at least help a little bit with, with the mitochondrial function. And there are, some, there are some, some drugs that are used in psychiatry that can actually diminish mitochondrial function and make things worse. And you may actually know that, I'd love to hear from you all. And there are some that can make it better, uh, that look at that. And and that I'll get into that in a little, little bit of how I'm trying to learn from the mitochondrial field and see if there's anything we can learn from that. That we can apply actually to things like bipolar disorder where it's not a mitochondriopathy but it looks like as as in the introduction that there may be a mitochondrial dysregulation not quite as severe as a mitochondriopathy but and a mitochondrial disease so let's talk a little bit about that and and there'll be lots of time for for questions and and again i'd love to learn from you all uh let's talk about this mitochondrial dysregulation in in psychiatric disorders themselves. So one of the leaders in the field is Anna Andreaza, who is up in uh, Toronto. Um, she's uh, an Italian-Brazilian uh, who moved to Toronto, and, and uh, she has been at the forefront of very rigorously measuring mitochondrial function um, in psychiatric disorders. And, and way back in the before times, before the pandemic, uh, we put together a special issue with colleagues of Biological Psychiatry, one of the best journals in psychiatry, uh, where we focused on on mitochondrial disorders and, and wondering, at least as a hypothesis for many psychiatric disorders, is the mitochondrial dysfunction causal, is it, is it at least contributing? Is it making things worse? Is there something going on there? And that specifically with bipolar disorder, it looks like there may be these changes in the genes that are related to mitochondria. Now, one of the things I learned in medical school was wrong. And one of the things I learned in medical school was that all of your mitochondrial DNA come from your mother. But it turns out that the delicate dance of building the complex machinery of a mitochondria involves the genes from the mitochondria and genes from outside the mitochondria. And there's about 1,200 proteins that you gotta form to be able to make that complex structure. So the nuclear DNA, the non-mitochondrial DNA, and the DNA from mitochondria have to produce the proteins that will all interact to self-assemble to build the complex mitochondria. And it looks like there are these genetic alterations in bipolar disorder. The other thing which is really fascinating is, is a finding that is consistent and has been known for decades, which is that in, if you can measure in the brain lactate levels, and there are ways to do this uh, that are non-invasive, and so the lactate levels are increased and the pH level in the brain is decreased and that's related to mitochondrial dysfunction. And the same with the main way that that we generate energy, and that's the oxidative phosphorylation, uh, which makes ATP, which you're all familiar with. Um, And again, it looks like oxidative phosphorylation is decreased. And one of the important products of that, phosphocreatinine, is also decreased in bipolar disorder. The person who actually originally made the hypothesis about a mitochondrial dysregulation in bipolar disorder is Tatafumi Kato, uh, this really great guy from Japan and had this whole model for for how you can have alterations in calcium metabolism, which also was one of the most replicated finding uh, in bipolar disorder and that um, there are abnormal calcium channels and there, there are specific areas in the brain where this looks like it's happening. And what's, what's uh, really interesting is that particularly with this, drug, this supplement, N-acetylcysteine, it may um, rescue some of the mitochondrial dysfunction And it's been of intense interest to see in clinical trials, does it help? It's a very complicated story, but there's some trials that suggest it can help in the long run and others that it may not. The the central medication, the one that's the gold standard is lithium. That also can help with mitochondrial function. Um, Same with some of the antipsychotics. And believe it or not, there's also a relationship that may not surprise you between stress and mitochondrial function and inflammation. Um, And so if you can teach people to think better about how they think if they have a mood disorder through evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy, you can decrease their distress you can decrease their stress, and that will have also a positive effect on mitochondria um, and inflammation. So um, other people have tried to integrate this, and my close friend and colleague Michael Burke from Australia and his colleagues wrote this in 2021 of trying to again pick apart what's the role of mitochondria in mood disorders, and it's consistent with the story that I'm telling you. It's much much more detailed, but uh, fundamentally, what what it looks like is, as I mentioned before, there's altered mitochondrial gene expression, uh, which makes it harder to build a fully functioning mitochondria. There's decreased brain energy metabolism. Uh, th- there's some data about markers of oxidative stress because part of part of making energy and again you may know a lot more about this than I do is that in terms of making ATP and all of the energy we have to do there's a cost and that makes a, a reactive oxygenated species uh, which basically has an extra electron but what happens that can react to other things and you get oxidative stress from that and that's also mitigated decreased by mitochondria i talked a little bit about calcium and again you can decrease that oxidative stress with at least some of the medications used in bipolar disorder now lithium is the is the simplest medication in all of medicine it's an ion It's like sodium and sodium chloride, right? You can actually make lithium chloride. They did that in the 20s to replace sodium chloride. Turned out people got lithium toxic and it was a problem. The only reason I'm telling you this is because it turns out this very simple ion turns on and off hundreds of genes. And just some of these are actually related to mitochondrial function. That's why I'm telling you that. And that's where one of the things that I'm trying to pursue is if you read this, it's a mouthful. It's like, what is that thing, right? What are you talking about with a peroxisome proliferator, activator receptor, gamma gamma coactivator one alpha? The the short name for that, by the way, is PGC one alpha. And I got interested in PGC one alpha because it turns out it's related to making mitochondria um, with a fancy term of mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, it's a long and complicated story, and I won't bore you with the chemistry of this or burden you with it. But the idea is that PGC1-alpha is a master metabolic Switch, And that the way to turn your genes on to make PGC1-alpha is by starvation. So you you preserve your energy. It'll turn it on and help you make more mitochondria. Cold, right? We we generate heat. And the heat comes from mitochondria. And uh, uh, the PGC1-alpha will promote you doing that. And here's where it gets really interesting. The other way to make PGC1-alpha is through exercise. And there's a link between exercise, PGC1-alpha, making something called brain fertilizer, which goes by the name of brain derived neurotrophic factor brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is BDNF. You exercise, you make PGC1-alpha, it hits some other things, FNDC5, don't worry about it. It gets cleaved into something called irisin. Irisin then promotes gene expression of this brain fertilizer, BDNF, in your head. And it turns out that you can also promote the gene expression of PGC1-alpha with an old anti-triglyceride drug. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to see if we can repurpose this old anti-triglyceride, like an anti-cholesterol thing, an anti-triglyceride to see if it'll help with bipolar depression. Um, But one other thing I'll I'll tell you about um, that we're doing in this area of trying to repurpose medication There's another energy related supplement that you may be familiar with called nicotinamide riboside. Um, And my colleague Dost Unger at McLean Hospital uh, figured out how to look at the energy products that would be increased in the brain with nicotinamide riboside using a a very sophisticated imaging uh, method call, called magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And, and he's going to see if in um, people who don't have psychiatric disorders, if you give them the nicotinamide riboside, will you increase the energy products of what's called NAD and NADH. And we're going to try to see uh, probably within a year or two, um, can we help people with bipolar depression by giving them nicotinamide riboside? And can we increase the energy products in the brain by giving them the uh, nicotinamide riboside? So uh, I, I hope I've given you something to think about, uh, maybe some new information, maybe things you already know, but, but it reinforced it. Um, but mostly I, I want to leave you with, with really the wonder and the awe uh, that, that we're alive because of mitochondria, that our brains work because of mitochondria, that our brains are, are energy hogs, and they take 20 to 25, three pounds, three pounds in our head, taking 20 to 25% of our calories, right? It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's an energy hog, and that, that you can have these dysregulations that can be subtle um, and cause all sorts of problems. But you can also have the major mitochondrial dysregulations that again, you're all too familiar with uh, that could lead to psychiatric symptoms and uh, and diagnosis. So with that, let me end and and um, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions or take any comments uh, that that you have.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Nuremberg. It's very the brain is an amazing is an amazing organ and it's very, very fascinating. I love how passionate you are too about, um, the brain and all it does. And there's, there's so much to be gleaned and so much to be learned. So we have some questions that have come through. And, um, the first question is, does schizophrenia run in families? And maybe you can discuss the difference between schizophrenia and bipolar and, um, If you have mitochondrial dysfunction, I'm curious, like, are you, how does that implicate with schizophrenia versus bipolar?
1: So schizophrenia does have um, a genetic risk to it. Um, It can, if you have a first degree family member, that means a, um, a parent, a sibling, or a child. Um, that you are at increased risk of having schizophrenia. The base rate for schizophrenia across the world is about 1%. And and if you have a first degree relative, that that is actually increased. Um, There's intense interest in studying this this, um, mitochondrial dysregulation that's eating the synapses. Uh, because it looks like, uh, uh, at least for some people, the genes for the signal for the mitochondria to eat those synapses um, is abnormal. Um, now, the, there's an overlap in genetic architecture, and meaning the genes and the way they're put together, in some groups with schizophrenia and some groups with bipolar disorder, but those people who have bipolar disorder and are... Or have hallucinations and delusions, uh, which is called psychosis. So, so the people who have psychotic episodes with bipolar disorder. They're closer to schizophrenia than the people who never have those. Those people who never have hallucinations or delusions, their architecture a little closer to depression. But, but the, you know, the difference is in the trajectory. The difference is there's a broader spectrum of functioning with people who have bipolar disorder and also the episodes with bipolar disorder are more episodic. Either people become manic or they become depressed uh, over time. So I hope that answers that.
0: Are there medications that are currently being used for bipolar disorder that mitochondrial disease patients should be trying to avoid?
1: Um, Maybe. Maybe. You know, the the state of the art is that we can't predict who's going to get better and who's going to get worse. And I'm sure many of the people who are listening have the experience of trying to help their loved ones and giving them something that made them worse Um, and other things that seem to make them better. And it may be that that it varies from individual to, to individual. But one of my colleagues, Mark Fry, out of Mayo, just published a really interesting study that some of the antidepressants can decrease mitochondrial function, and some of the antidepressants can increase it. And those antidepressants that increased mitochondrial functioning seem to precipitate mania more frequently than those that didn't increase mitochondrial function. So that that's pretty interesting. And I think, you know, there's more to be looked at for that.
0: So how do you sort that through with your doctor? Like, is it a trial and error? Like, is that your best bet? Or are there certain like directions that mito patients tend to have to lean toward first when they're working with their psychiatric doctor to try to figure out the best medications?
1: Well, I, I think, um, It, it at its heart, it really is empirical. But I would think your community would know what seems to be helping and what seems to be making things worse, and and um, I would rely on your community to communicate to the docs. On average, this doesn't look pretty good because <laughs> um, you may know better than they do.
0: <laughs> so we had a patient ask if. Um... And this is how kind of um, the drugs interact with each other. If a patient is on lithium and lamotrigine, I don't know if I said that correctly. It's
1: lamotrigine with the trade name lamictal.
0: Mm -hmm. Can valproate be added to enhance the treatment?
1: So that is actually a, a complicated question and a complicated answer. But we know how to do that, but you have to do it very carefully. And that's because there's what's called a pharmacokinetic interaction between Depakote, Valproate, and Lamotrigine, Lamictal. And quite simply, if you give somebody Valproate or Depakote, you will raise their levels of Lamotrigine. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be very careful about adding the Depakote to Lamotrigine because you might raise it too fast and then bad things can happen. So sometimes what'll happen, if you mix those two things, you have to lower the dose of lamotrigine, lamictal.
0: That's good. I really appreciate that that explanation. That's helpful. Um, Another question is, is how common is OCD with Mito? My 18-year-old has dealt with OCD and I've heard about various other young people with symptoms of OCD.
1: So, um, if you think about it, the phenomenology or, or how people present with OCD is there's a repetitive behavior that they can't stop. And either this is a repetitive behavior or repetitive thoughts or both. And this is where the general concept of regulation comes in. We we do something and then we stop and we do something else. Well, it turns out that's a very sophisticated, complicated decision to make. And what happens is that somebody will do something and it's not regulated to stop doing that. In other words, you can consider it a dysregulation of the break, right? Don't stop doing this and, you know, go do something else. And, and, our micro decisions, our micro behavior, you do this, you stop it, you go do something else that we take for granted. Well, that's regulation. And your brain is regulating that. And in OCD, you can't, you just can't regulate it, right? You just can't stop doing it because you can't put the brake on. Um, And there's, there's a a lot known about brain connectivity and, and how that's dysregulated in Uh, uh, in OCD and then it's not a surprise if you can't regulate your energy and you can't really regulate your connections between things, then you get into this repetitive behavior.
0: So is it, is it um, assumable to say that like if you're having a mito crash or you're in the midst of a mito crisis, that some of these psychiatric issues that you're already having like OCD Will become worse because all of a sudden you have less energy for your brain to utilize. Or how do those things connect?
1: Um, so if if someone's in a crisis and and, um, and and for whatever reason you know the the mitochondria are more dysregulated than usual, you could just think that your brain is not going to work as well. Mm-hmm and at least that's the way I think about it.
0: I mean, I think it's helpful because I think if um, if you can recognize that ahead of time, maybe before a mito crash happens, then when you're in the situation and because it's scary when your brain isn't functioning the way that you're used to it, if you can talk yourself through that process ahead of time, um, not that it completely makes it not scary, but maybe less scary because you were able to be aware of it ahead of time.
1: Right, right, right.
0: Um, a patient asked, "Can you explain a little bit about um, you mentioned earlier in your presentation about how psychiatric disorders often precede a, a Mito diagnosis by 13 years? Children who are diagnosed with Mito before any psych issues are presented." Um, how does that fit into that figure? And should they be concerned of psych issues later on or keep a close eye on it if their mito diagnosis was actually first? Um, I'm sure too, with all of the genetic testing that's available now and the whole genome testing, you know, hopefully, right? People are getting diagnosed sooner. So. Should, should psych be something that, that is followed through um, because of the connection between mito and the brain and what you discussed? Um.
1: So it's a very complicated question, but I'll try to do my best to answer it. There are all sorts of patterns, as you can imagine. And what I was really talking about was on average, you can have some of the kids present first with psychiatric and then the mito, but you can have plenty of kids who present with the mito and then later psychiatric. And you can also have people present with mito and no psychiatric, um, or it can vary a lot. You know, as can you imagine, you're, you're dealing with, with um, uh, I'm using the word complex too much, but you know, a very complex system. So, so you have a lot of variability and you have a range of things that can happen. Um, but I, I think it's more about thinking about the probability that if, if a kid has a mitochondrial disorder, they are at risk of having psychiatric things, behavioral problems later on.
0: Well, that's helpful. It's, it's helpful because then it's something something to be aware of and to keep an eye on that it, it's, it's good to know that it might not be 100%. But if you start seeing signs or symptoms to go ahead and talk with your doctor about it.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, do people with mitochondrial dysfunction and high oxidative stress markers need more than typical magnesium? What is the role of magnesium in bipolar and mitodysfunction?
1: There, there, there's a, um, a growing but small number of, of studies that suggest that magnesium may be helpful in bipolar disorder. Um, could be due to my ignorance. I don't know of any clinical trials that have really looked at that hypothesis. Um, and and I, I think your community will know a lot more about magnesium than I do.
0: Is magnesium something you use with your patients or not as no, much? okay,
1: generally not.
0: And you've, I think you've touched base on this, but I've seen this question come up several times. So I just want to make sure um, that we've answered it. Are there medications that seem to work better for Mito patients with bipolar than other medicines? Any medications that should generally avoid? Um, for example, this parent says her her child had a horrible reaction to Zyprexa.
1: Yeah, some of the the antipsychotics. Um, it, you know, it, it it's something to to keep in mind and to record and let your clinicians know that, that this medication made my child worse. Right. And and really you shouldn't be giving them that medication. And again, as we talked about earlier, I think it's mostly empirical, but also I like to think of um, lithium in particular as protecting neurons. Uh, so it has that quality to it. Um, and it does, Enhance mitochondrial function. Um, in, in fact, uh, uh, we're doing a study where you, you can actually grow little mini brains from people. Uh, they're called brain organoids. And um, we're, we're about to do an experiment with taking the brain organoids that we grow. They're not really brains. They're little five millimeter balls of cells. Um, and we're going to apply lithium to them, them to see what happens to energy metabolism.
0: So this question is, um, is complicated, but I think it's a really great question and maybe it's not as complicated. I'm going to kind of pose some dual question in here. So she, this, um, this parent asked, they said that they have a son with pole G, um, and another 26 year old son, um, with bipolar two, but who's not been genetically tested for pole G so far. He has no other mito symptoms and they're curious what your thoughts are on that. Um and then I have a follow up question once you answer she thought's about like testing or connection between polygy and depression is it worth them testing because they already have another son with polygy and this one is showing symptoms of bipolar
1: uh, the, my my short answer is i don't know and and that that you may want to think about what would change right with any testing would, would it change treatment Um, uh, would it have any sort of practical effect? And that's the way I I look at all of these things. You know, sometimes genetic testing, you just want to know, but but mostly I would focus on what would it change and work with your clinician to try to figure that out.
0: So the follow-up question, I guess, would be if you, when you see bipolar patients, like, Knowing the connection that, that can occur between that and Mito and knowing that there are, if you're diagnosed with Mito, there are certain things that you do within the Mito community, like Mito cocktails and such. Like, Is it worthwhile if you're able to get genetic testing if you were already diagnosed with bipolar 20 years ago, but you've never had genetic testing done?
1: Yeah. It, uh, I, again, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's really done that or studied it or figured out would that help guide treatment, right? And and would, would you go towards some of the things that your community is most familiar with in terms of the cocktails and the supplements that, that uh, you really found to be at least useful? Um, it's an interesting idea. I've, I've never seen it.
0: So another, another question that came through is, um, based on your presentation, um, the patient was asking, are you saying that mania can be induced by antidepressants in some Mito patients?
1: Um, so there's something that's called treatment emergent mania, um, and, and there's a lot of controversy in the field about the use of antidepressants in bipolar depression, um, And in fact, there are no studies that show in bipolar depression that an antidepressant that's labeled as an antidepressant is any better than placebo. Um, Nevertheless, there's a subpopulation of people who seem to need it. So it's not an absolute sort of thing of don't use antidepressants. But in about 10% of patients, um, they can be kicked into mania with an antidepressant.
0: Okay. One of our clinicians asked, considering that valproic acid can damage mitochondria in some cases, should the use of medium chain fatty acids as mood stabilizers be considered?
1: Um, it, it can be. And, and the, um, the omega-3 fatty acid story is also complicated and inconsistent Uh, for bipolar disorder. Um, There are some studies that are somewhat positive and there are more studies that are more definitively negative, but they also may be complicated because it may have to do with the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. And if people are eating a lot of omega-6, it may override any sort of omega-3, you know, fish oil type of thing uh, um, supplementation. So it's it's a complicated story, and it's unclear if, in fact, the the omega threes really help in the long run.
0: Okay. Um, another patient asked, could you put the reference to the research you just mentioned, Fry at Mayo, in the chat? So maybe maybe towards the end, or maybe I... <laughs> a follow up email. You can send me a follow up email, and maybe we can um, if. If this particular patient would like to email me at sherry at mitoaction.org, I'll try to get that information to you when, um, Dr. Nuremberg finds it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would have to, I'd have to dig it up. I, I, I think I remember where it is, but I can find it pretty easily.
0: Okay. So feel free to email me and we'll try to get you that information. Um, Another patient asked, do you have an opinion about using antidepressive as painkillers, as many neurologists used to do?
1: So there's um, one of the medications, uh, duloxetine, um, and also some of the older medications, some of the old tricyclics, like amitriptyline, dizipramine, amitriptyline, um, seem to help people with pain. Uh, so I, I think it's more about what's the evidence for that, What's the use for it? And again, it depends what the source of pain is, depends what's going on. Um, but again, you, you have to work with your doctor to make those decisions.
0: Um, there are lots of great questions here. So I hope everyone realizes we're trying to, I'm trying to see if I can um, connect them all together. Is there a way to... do you know if NAC can cause mania
1: so um, there are short term and long term clinical trials with n acetylcysteine um, some of them are positive some of them are negative but None of them, to my knowledge, precipitated mania. Now, there's one interesting twist in the story. And the twist in the story is that if you eat NAC and usual doses, mm, 1,000, 1,200 milligrams twice a day, um, there are some trials that go up to 3,600 a day um, in divided doses for OCD and other things like that. The, the, um, the challenge is it's hard to get it into the brain. Just because you ate it doesn't mean it gets in your brain. And, and the, it's only about 16%, 17% that gets into your brain. But there's a trick. And the trick is there's an ancient medication called probenicid. And what probenicid will do is it will facilitate the transport of NAC into the brain. And there's uh, a series of studies that were done for kids with traumatic brain injury. When they gave them NAC and probenicid, they clearly increased uh, um, NAC going into the brain, and it was also neuroprotective, protected their brains from uh, traumatic brain injury.
0: Wow, that's really interesting.
1: There's Um, another interesting story when when, uh, um, N-acetylcysteine is combined with an old antibiotic, called minocycline and both together were more protective for traumatic brain injury than either one alone.
0: There's so much to learn and so much to be gleaned through all of this. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, what do you think, or what are you seeing with diet and mito dysfunction and bipolar? How much is diet playing into treatment?
1: Um, So I I like to tell people that the principle that they should use is listen to their mother, eat your vegetables, don't eat too much meat, don't eat too much. um, And and, um, uh, your food should be recognizable to your grandmother, right? Don't eat processed food. Don't eat too much junk, right? So listen to your mother. Uh, It turns out that if you listen to your mother, and you get a good night's sleep, don't do drugs, uh, don't do alcohol too much, uh, get exercise every day. Those things are all good for your brain. But there's also a fascinating uh, line of research that suggests for some people, the keto diet might be helpful. And it turns out the keto diet has been used for over a hundred years for epilepsy. Um, and that the keto diet also has beneficial effects on mitochondrial function. Um, It remains to be seen what the clinical trials will really show, but there, uh, there are now several serious researchers who are looking into trying to get people to have a keto diet, which is not easy to do, and to see whether or not that helps. And there's some other nutritional information that maybe the Mediterranean diet is just as good because uh, it's not as hard as the keto. So I, I think we'll learn more in the next few years. There's a fascinating place in Australia called the Mood and Food uh, Center uh, that's out of Deakin University. Uh, Felice Jacka is the head of that. And they, they're they also doing serious work to try to understand the best ways to use diet or not use it. But, you know, don't eat processed foods, eat your vegetables and fruits, uh, not too much red meat, um, not too many sweets and don't overeat.
0: That's really good advice. There's a, there's a funny, there's a book with a funny name and it's, it's called, if it's not food, don't eat it. And I remember yeah, picking right. that book up years ago. And just one of the th- points that it says is when, if you look in the back of the label and you can't pronounce anything on the back of the label, that's, that's a sign, <laughs> um, that it might not be completely food. And, um, right it's fascinating. Yeah. But food sustains us and gives us energy and and it's important what we put in our bodies. So
1: yeah, we call that other stuff. F U D it's food. (laughs) (laughs) That's bad for you. Don't eat food.
0: (laughs) There's, there's a lot more questions, but I'm going to try just to do two more because I know we're, I'm conscious of our time right now. Um, one question that came in is, can you explain a little, Oh, Can you explain a little bit about, you mentioned using evidence-based cognitive therapy. What is this and how does it help?
1: So cognitive behavioral therapy is a systematic way to give people the tools to think about how they think. There is a great bumper sticker. Don't believe everything you think. And if you think about it, All too often, we actually believe what we think. And when people are depressed, they think in very stereotypical, dysfunctional ways that don't help them. For example, they'll think in black and white ways, right? Um, They will overgeneralize from small things that are negative. And so, if you make a small mistake, um, I'm a dummy. I'm terrible. I can't believe I did that. This little mistake just shows you what a horrible human being I am. And that, in cognitive behavioral therapy, in a very compassionate way, you help people then structure their own response to their thoughts. So you go, okay, let me write down what did I just think? I thought. Oh, uh, 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 what happened? Okay, I made a mistake. Um, how did that make, what it made me think? I'm a terrible person. Well, let me rethink that. What can I call that? Oh, it's an overgeneralization. Okay, let me rethink it. Am, am I like a terrible person every single moment of the day because i well, oh, that, that's kind of an exaggeration, isn't it? Well, maybe I'm not so bad. Well, now how do you feel? Well, maybe a little bit better, right? So it gives you a very structured way to think about your thinking. To recognize the distortions that you can do because you're depressed, and then if you don't think you're so horrible, you don't feel so bad, and and that's and there's very good evidence that this this structured way of learning how to do it uh, uh, can can make people feel better.
0: And so if someone wanted to learn more about cognitive behavioral therapy, do they talk to a psychiatrist or a cognitive behavioral therapist, or is there overlap in these fields?
1: Yeah. A lot of people have the skills to be able to to do that. Um, There's also, by the way, a very nice way to incorporate mindfulness. And uh, there's a very good book and a workbook uh, by... um, Zindel Siegel and colleagues called The Mindful Way Through Depression. Um, And it allows people to learn self-compassion as they sit and let their thoughts float by like clouds without judging them. And then to use the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, uh, skills to then do what I just mentioned before, Oh, let me process a little bit. Let me think about what I'm thinking. Um, and then you're not just stuck into it, you know, otherwise you're too focused on yourself. Um, so, and, and allows you to then to understand your relationship to yourself, to the world and to the future.
0: Well, that's beautiful. That's important. Um, okay. One more question and I promised <laughs> we'll, we'll stop. Um, and this is more of a specific question. So, um, The question is, and I think this is interesting too, because I know even with long COVID, they're starting to use low-dose naltroxone a little bit. I might not be saying that word correctly, so please correct me. Um, But this patient asked if you have any thoughts about low-dose naltroxone for pain for mitopatients. patients.
1: Um,
0: Or any thoughts on it in general, it would be fine. (laughs)
1: yeah if if you um if you go to the internet and you look at low dose naltrexone you'll go down a rabbit hole. It's sort of like it's good for anything um there there's a fascinating literature on using micro doses of of naltrexone um and and um but I don't have enough experience with really to talk about it in any intelligent way so i will uh, i will defer
0: I appreciate your honesty and I also really appreciate you letting me put you on the spot with some of these more specific questions, drug related. Um, Sometimes it's hard to sort through maybe what's too specific to ask. And yet I really appreciate your willingness to let us ask those questions and then being honest with, I'm not sure this is the right question for me to ask. and um, And then just sharing your plethora of knowledge and information with our community. So thank you so much for being here and for walking along with us through this journey and explaining um, so much about Mido and psychiatry and how all those things overlap. I think all the participants that are here, all of your amazing questions, um, I apologize if I wasn't able to get to all of your questions. You can feel free to email some to me if you have a burning question. I can try to see if, um, if we can help find some answers for you there. Um, but we really, really appreciate you, Dr. Nuremberg, and all that you do. And if you guys want to review this um, recording again, or if you want to send it to a friend or family member or clinician, we will post it on our website, um, on sometime in the next coming week. And so you can send the link out to your clinicians. Also, we post it on our Google Play and Spotify. So, Um, If they want to listen to it while they're doing other daily activities or in the car, it'll be available that way, too. So thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you next time.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for the privilege of of being able to share what I know. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Now I have to figure out how to stop it. (laughs)